mean, the, the, the variation in types of beards there are is kind of astonishing. Like so true. for ladies, there's like a bunch of different types of titties. You know what I mean? But with guys, it's like facial hair can come in in so many different ways. Like we were watching a golfer today on the US of uh, the PGA tour open or the PGA uh, championship. And his beard was just like so thick. I'm like, my beard would never do that. Well, I, I commented on him being cute and Connor was very, he felt very bad about himself. Because yeah, because beard his, comparison. his beard was just so strong. And I was like, this guy's a high T, he's a high T guy. And I just don't know. Rainier's clearly a high T guy. You're a high T I bro. was actually worried. You were going to talk about women's beards for a second. Whoa. That was your that. reference. Like you're, to you offer jumped to that. in to women. Kel- I was like, oh shit. We're talking Kelly's, about uh, beards. Kelly's nipples have beards. <laughs> wow. You just got outed. <laughs> What? I can't believe you just said that. That might be the most absurd thing he's it's ever related. said. It makes you relatable. You're a hot lady and it makes you relatable to people, you know? Don't you do. It is what it I'm is. I've got love you handles. Do. You have nipple beards. I fucking I'm not saying a word. Well, so I'm also, this is so not what I was planning on, but I, you guys, you get it. You have children. I'm pregnant. And Aww. congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my my nipples have started changing colors too. So we have a lot of conversations about my nipples it's in a, this house right it's a, now. It's a new set of titties that I've never experienced before. Yeah, yeah. It's cool. Oh, yeah. It's exciting. <laughs> it is. Yeah. In some ways, I'm sure. Some ways not, but. Yes. The nauseous <laughs> yeah. part, not so much, but the rest Aww. of it, very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, That's my alarm awesome. clock is somebody hacking in the bathroom every morning at yeah. seven o'clock. Oh, like, oh, oh no, must be time to stayed. get up. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, gosh. Kelly, I had this. I had this thing happen where I was working. I had to drive to people's houses, and it would make me carsick. So I oh, carried yeah. this is disgusting gallon bag Ziplocs, and I would oh. drive and just up chuck the boogie right there to zip it. I keep driving because that was my whole job. Sometimes I'd be walking down and I would just excuse myself to someone's yard. <laughs> she would fill yeah. her car disgusting. with Ziploc bags of no, vomit. I did not do that. <laughs> I hope I she threw them to. out at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. that's disgusting. One would hope. Yeah, yeah, one, not, yeah. but I, I get no, it. No. Sometimes, sometimes you can't pull over. Like I had an issue with our dog Theo one time where he oh, had like no. pooped in my car when I was hunting. I took him hunting <laughs> and usually he's good about being in the car and it wasn't hot out or anything. It was like 60 degrees. So I was like, I'll just, leave, I'll just put the window down in the back. And if I get out to go, it was an antelope hunt. So that means you're just driving like 500 miles a day, just trying to find these things. And then you try to put a chase on them and they can see forever. And it's impossible. Super fun though. But I left him in the car and he pooped in my car because he was so stressed out because I, I, he, I didn't realize he's a hunting dog. And like, if I get out of the car, it's fine. If I get out of the car with a gun, he loses his mind because he wants oh, yeah. to be out there with me and he got so stressed. And then I heard him like, I let him out, but he didn't want to poop again. And it was like diarrhea. It was disgusting. And I'm on the highway and he's like whimpering. And I'm like, dude, I cannot pull over. There's nowhere for me to pull over. Dude, you've got to wait like five minutes till I can get this exit. And then I just heard it explosion in my back seat, And I was like, Oh my God. I was so mad, but I understand like the Ziploc bag makes total sense. Having had that experience. So I'm like, if it comes, it comes, you know, yeah. and you get car sick or whatever it is that makes you nauseous. Mm-hmm. Like, Sometimes you can't pull over. Yep. Yeah. That was like my plan. It was like I had to be on the road and I couldn't, I didn't know when it was going to happen. You know? Yeah. This is such oh a disgusting God. conversation. It really is. We've like, This is we the weirdest this conversation is, we've ever this had. This is, you know, this is real shit right here. <laughs> yeah. No pun intended. I'm real shit. Yeah. Can we go back to the bed conversation? Because Connor and I really feel like during COVID having a guest room was our saving grace because we needed space. And that was really the only time we could get space. And so now we've kind of implemented that even when we're like, we're doing good and we're not annoyed with each other. We'll sleep in separate bedrooms and just like get a really good night's sleep and have a little bit of space. And it feels really good. But I'm curious if you guys have ever done stuff like that. We're, we're way too codependent for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't let me fool you. We are very codependent. <laughs> we're, we're the exact opposite. In fact, during COVID, so we've got four kids and uh, wow. one of our kids came down with COVID and there was an option for him to go quarantine at a different house that, that came up. And, and of course, I think a lot of people would have jumped at that in the moments where everyone was kind of uncertain, you know, if COVID was mm-hmm. like the next plague or not. And we all looked at each other and we said, no, you know what? If, if one of us gets COVID, all of us gets COVID. So we just all opened up all our doors, hung out. <laughs> At one point, one of us got COVID. We're like, cool, share the cup together. We're different in a way because we're a blended family. And so 
very early on, we decided rather than kind of consider each other step kids or step parents that we would take out that step of removal and emphasize togetherness. And so togetherness kind of became our familial value. And I think, you know, even in the bedroom with our like miniature queen bed, it still ends up that way. I'm always kind of chuckling at how we'll not only hold hands, we'll hold elbows or hold heels. (laughs) It's like at some point in time, part of our body has to be touching. And I always thought it was weird until I was reading this history of the of marriage among the Nez Perce Indians in the Pacific Northwest. And I read that they would actually marry parts of their body to each other. Like they wouldn't just marry the whole self. They would marry an elbow to an elbow. I don't <laughs> quite get it, but I kind of get it in bed. It makes sense to me somehow. Yeah. That's great. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. I, I think... I also think just as being big people, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. And I run hot. I'm like, just fucking don't touch me, bro. Like we can cuddle before we go to sleep. And then if you get anywhere near me, I literally push Connor. I will wake him up and push his ass over. <laughs> well, we're not miniature people. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel like maybe we're miniature or something? Yeah. Well, no. you're very small on the screen of the laptop. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. You, you could we're be this like size. Polly you could be size, you guys. Yeah, you could be. Like, po- yeah. Kelly, the- I don't think you're all that much different than Christy because I do have like the sneaking suspicion because I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and I see that she is hugging the edge of the bed. I have the sneaking suspicion that she allows me to go to sleep thinking that we're close and connected. Mm. But then, you know, midway through, it's the shove off. She escapes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sweating. I'm like, ah. My hot box. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. Well, I'm so, I'm so excited to be chatting with you guys. You, I have been just raving about your show to Connor, which I posted about this the other day. I just want people to really understand how not only how good your show is, but how important it is and how well done it is. You guys really have taken the podcast Love Like Hell and run with it in such a way that it feels good to listen to. It it makes me feel something, which I think a lot of podcasts are just kind of there, right? And it also has such raw, vulnerable conversations that are so moving. I'm just I really want to acknowledge you both for that. It's really impressive. And, you know, we do this for a living. So I listen to bajillion podcasts (laughs) and it's just, it's really impressive. And I just love what you guys have done. I love the conversations you're having. So I'm really excited to continue that here today. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's kind of been like how do we weave story and kind of art Mm -hmm. because Rainier does storytelling for a living. Right. And that's part of who we are. We always love story love stories. Um, and, uh, but it's been fun to figure out how to create something a little bit different to keep yeah. us interested. Cause we kind of get bored minds as well. Mm-hmm. Like we're kind of like, yeah. Happy. And I think in a saturated world of podcasting, like setting yourself apart is so challenging. You know, I, I don't know if you have ever heard of this guy. His name's uh, Jake Tran and he mm-hmm. reached a million YouTube subscribers in a year. Right. Which you would think, wow, he's like came out of nowhere. But when he tells his whole story, that's not how it was. Like he was doing what most people do, which was emulating or mimicking their favorite people, right? And same thumbnails, same topics, same thing. And it's like, well, if you're getting a hundred views a video and you're next to somebody else's video who has gotten a million views or a hundred thousand views, well, clearly that person has more social credibility. People are going to click on that. So it limits you from growth. But when you can find a way to do in a saturated market, especially do something similar, but different, like it feels different. Maybe it's, and that I think one thing that Kelly kind of, articulated was that it was a combining what you see a lot with like relationship podcasts with the true crime podcast, which is something people don't ever do is like go to a completely different genre, figure out what's working for them and then apply it to your own stuff. Right. And that's something that I do with, with the politics stuff into self-help. Like I see a lot of the politics stuff, like what's going good here with how is their content design working? What is going on? Cause people only look at Rachel Hollis or whoever it is that's like doing self-helpy type stuff. And try and emulate that. But I'm like, well, what about what's working way over here, like five degrees of separation away? Clearly, it's in the same platform, right? So why not apply that to what you're doing here and like make it different, but also comfortable and like really relatable in that way? Yeah, it's really approachable. And I think the other thing I love is that, I mean, relationships really are constant investigations into ourselves and to into the couple, right? And that's really what you guys have provided. And so I think it's really cool that you've honed in on that and gotten really clear of like, we're going to do these personal excavations. We're going to look into how we got to where we are. What are all the steps? And it's really cool. So I just wanted to share that with everyone. But in that vein, I want to talk about one of the first episodes and you talk about infidelity 
humility. And there's a lot of back and forth between the two of you explaining both of your separate experiences and how you got there. And then also coming back and almost reviewing it together of saying, oh yeah, I understand why you felt that way. And here's where I was. So can you guys give us a little glimpse into that? Because I think that that really sets the stage nicely for who you are and and how you've gotten here and, and the immense amount of work that you guys have done. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the journey that Christy and I have been on across so many years has been one of learning how to share these realities with one another in such a way where we begin to know each other like geography. And I think that the more that you excavate those things, the more you're able to just talk about them. There was a a moment in one of the early podcasts where I looked at her and I said, I think we actually have to like advance the storyline because we're just way too curious about what was happening for each other. And I think we get like that. Both of us just want to know, want to investigate, are are so curious about what was happening for the other person. And, And as you mentioned, you know, part of our story is, is a moment where I confessed infidelity to Christy. And it wasn't just a confession. It was, it was everything that went along with it. It was really the, the falling of all the plates, you know, uh, there was job loss, there was reputation, there was friend and, and familial relationships that kind of ruptured. And, and we were there in the center of the cyclone. And I think it was a terribly uncertain moment. We didn't know what way was up. We didn't know where to turn. And during that point in time, we really had to find not just who each other were, not just who we were in relationship to, but who we were in relationship to our own self. And so our experience was an experience of discovering both self and other in the center of a storm. And I think sometimes, you know, it's like there's always storms in life. We're always shifting. We're always changing. But sometimes those storms get inside of you, you know, and this was one of those storms for us. And, you know, it wasn't just one thing. Again, it was like this unfolding process of life where our whole life was upended. So a lot of what, you know, I've written about or we've talked about or even we teach, you know, in, in mentoring other couples has been based around the principles that we learned then. And so it seemed really natural when it came time to kind of talk about this openly that we would start there with one of the most traumatic crime scenes that we knew. Right. And that allowed us to see so much of what relationships are in part, because when the old relationship died, a new relationship began to be possible. And I think that's the gift of infidelity. And that's really a lot of what we talk about. Yeah. And it wasn't like it just happened. Like we weren't reporting live at the scene, which is really <laughs> nice. Like, right? That would have been really traumatic live at the scene. This is what happened. We were able to reflect back on it. And also explore something new because at those times for us, we were curious, but maybe not curious in the same things that we're able to be curious about now. And so part of that is really when Rainier was saying, like, I think we have to advance like, oh, that's good. I I didn't know that because there's some emotional distance and healing from it that we can enter in with a little bit more curiosity, which has been pretty, pretty fun and interesting, too. You know, I think it's so interesting. As I was listening to that episode, I just kept thinking back. And it's so funny how we can change our minds so much over time. And, you know, programming of if there is infidelity or cheating, fuck you, get the fuck out of my life. You're not allowed back here. We're never getting back together. And that's really how I was raised and how I looked at it. And I think the more I've learned and heard stories like you guys of working through it and coming to some sort of understanding of like, well, Everyone contributes to this. It's not necessarily Christie's fault, but how did we contribute in the relationship together to get to this point? And we have a chance to make a decision now. We have choice in this. We can choose to go our separate ways or we can choose to be really fucking uncomfortable and have a really honest conversation and choose each other in this new chapter. So I can see how people get into these situations and make a different choice and choose to stay with that person and work through it because it doesn't have to be so black or white. And that's it's so different than how I was raised. But I think that this brings to light that there are other options and there are ways to work through it. So I'm so curious, Christy, like what was that process for you? And was there ever a moment where you were like, I hate you. I don't want you in my life. I remember you saying something like, I don't even recognize you. Like I can't look at you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember recording that and like it was so emotional for me. And that because I remember that so vividly, like I didn't want to look up and see his face because I was like, oh, 
I don't even know who I'm with. I think that's the difficult part of, well, there's a lot of difficult parts to infidelity, but a difficult part is distortion of memory. And that everything from that point feels like, I don't actually know what this is. I don't know the ground that I'm standing on or walking on or who this person is in my life. And have we created a, a charade, really? And so in that moment, it's hard to figure out what's real. And a lot of times, Rainier would have to say, for instance, like, well, it wasn't all bad. I'm like, yeah, it kind of was now that I know this information. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the truth is, is that it wasn't all bad. We weren't necessarily congruent. We weren't necessarily honest with one another, but it wasn't, the whole thing wasn't a shit show. And, and working with couples and things like that, you have to be really careful about how memory gets distorted because all of a sudden, everything I've ever known must have been just totally awful. And that's not true. In those moments, it does feel like that. So moving forward for me, like, you never know what you're going to do. I think maybe similar to you, Kelly, like I didn't really have a great roadmap. I don't know if anyone does for those situations. It feels like it's a black and white thing. Like we grew up in Christian homes. And so that was the one, <laughs> the one exception. Like if someone is not faithful to you, guess what? You get out, you get a free card out. Other than that, like you're bound to this person and relationship. Yeah, it's healthy. healthy. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, that's the way to do it. Just yeah, right. Yeah, Isn't it know. awful? It is awful. <laughs> yeah. But like, I, I would say like my programming was really good. I was really well programmed. And I don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense to you. But like, I believed all of that and more. Right. So it was really the opportunity to figure out what is this and what's underneath of it. It wasn't black and white. Mm. I really loved Rainier. And so I wanted to figure out, is it possible to salvage anything? I've been on my chocolate gold from Organifi kick again. Yeah. And do you know what made it even better than the glory it already was? I put some cocaine in that jar. Oh! Yeah. That's how you so That's yeah. why the baby's doing so well. a little so bit well. of that Colombian Bam Bam in there. Jesus Christ. I'm just kidding. Was it raw, raw milk? milk? It was raw milk? It was that, it was that nectar of the gods? Oh, fucking Dude, milk. Nothing like, nothing like juice in a fucking cow. I mean, the combo of the two makes it so rich and creamy. I used to put coconut butter in there, which I'm still a fan of if you're into that and you're not doing raw milk because you're a pussy. But <laughs> really... <laughs> Raw milk is where it's at. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you, dude. Raw milk's great. Add some fat, add some protein, I can't add wait to, all I the can't, vitamins I and minerals. I wait to make raw milk smoothies for the kiddos. I know. I made those raw milk um, popsicles. popsicles. Those are bomb too. I should make those with some Organifi. I'm going to eat one of those later. Oh my God. I should make those with the Organifi Red. Do it. Do it. That would be so good. Oh my God. Like you should start berries. a cooking channel. Shut up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the raw milk helps it. But, but I mean, of course, raw milk's just really good milk. Yeah. And the Organifi Gold is a little boom pop. You know what I'm saying? It's a boom pop. Yeah, that's what chocolate gold is a boom pop in your mouth. Um, no, but for real, I have been really enjoying. I kind of like cycle because sometimes I'm like, okay, I've been having this for four years. I think I need to take a break. And I did take a break from chocolate gold, which was really great. But I've weaved it back into my routine. And I'm so glad I did. And it's just the perfect addition to my mornings. Um, and I've said this a million times. So you can tell me to shut up in your car if you're listening to me and you're like, I've heard this. Don't ever tell my wife to shut up. I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> yeah, he reserves the right to do that himself. But um, chocolate gold is the best if you're trying to come off of caffeine and you want an alternative. It is frothy and delicious and thick and chocolatey and it tastes so good and it's so good for you. It's highly anti-inflammatory. You can have it morning or night, um, but try it out. And if you're doing raw milk, just add that. In. Am I frothy and delicious and thick? Yeah. Yeah. What's you're a thick bitch. I'm also very you also have great calves. Yeah. My calves are going to have an OnlyFans soon. That's we'll have to do ads for my OnlyFans. I'm totally here for that, babe. If that's how you want to contribute to this family, go for it. Yeah. I'm into it. Okay, great. Okay. Go to Organifi.com slash OKBabe. You'll get 20% off. Connor's caps and do not come with OnlyFans.com slash uh, politically homeless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the weird thing is in growing up in um, kind of more of a conservative Christian environment, less and less of that, I feel, or well, how can I say this? Is that how you grew up? Yeah. Okay. But... One thing that I was really uncomfortable with is is the kind of facade of certainty that that whole environment kind of puts out there for you. 
it's so reductionist. It's like, if this, then that, you know, it's like, it's like, there's a place for like cause and effect, right? Like you drink and drive, you can get an accident. Like there's a different thing. That's a different, but, but within, within relationship or even just life in general, or the nuance kind of reality that is like human existence, that doesn't really work for me. Like it, and I also have zero interest in having that amount of certainty in my life. And that's why I was really uncomfortable with that whole and looking, reflecting back now, looking at it and saying, Hey, that doesn't really make sense to me. And also it isn't a way to live life for me personally. It's like everything was so lined up and certain and, and orchestrated. And there was like a rule book, like a literal rule book that also was full of contradictions, which I found very interesting. And one thing that I really loved about, and I think relationship was kind of a portal to this for me, relationship and psychedelics. We're looking at this and saying like, okay, well I can like challenge this and even actually invite more, maybe chaos or uncertainty into my life, which to me, as someone who's very uncomfortable with uncertainty was way more fun. Like it was more invigorating in my life. Of course there are, but there's, there's a shadow side to that, right? Like you invite chaos into your life by like looking at things in a, through a different lens and kind of getting off the beaten path. I used to talk about that a lot. I'm like, if you want to go like down that rabbit hole or down that route of like, here's a trail, follow it. That's, that's cool. And you're probably going to be it's safe. Right. But if that doesn't fit your personality type, you've really got to like get off the beaten path with a machete and like figure that shit out for yourself. And maybe you'll find somebody like an Esther Perel or something like that, or like you guys who says like, Oh, I've kind of been here before too. And you've got like a, an idea of where you're going, but still at the end of the day, you're going to run into all kinds of wild shit, whether that's, you know, metaphorical snakes or lions or tigers or bears, whatever it is. Like once you get off the safe trail, you have to kind of forge that for yourself. And that's, I understand how for some people that can be so much, so overwhelming, but for some people, I think it's, it's invigorating in life to do that. And I think that's really one of those things that it's so subjective. Like there's really no objective yes or no, or right or wrong in that it, it is are you, are you willing to invite this into your life? That doesn't make you more evolved or better or any of those things. It's a personality trait a lot of the times. And in in relationship, I think that has to, that has to overlap or you're just going to like part ways from one another and like get lost. Yeah. I think both of us were rebelling for quite some time in terms of like belief structure and programming. And I know that for Rainier, he was always deconstructing stuff, like always (laughs) pushing into that. That is just like who he is. And for me, I was more rebellious in terms of like, I was just avoiding it. Like I didn't really believe it. I was just kind of like sidestepping a lot of that because my programming was very successful. I'm like, wow. In terms of my thought process and behaviors. But I think I more had a silent rebellion, an internal silent rebellion. And his rebellion was more out loud. So when nothing we get about to my rebellion places, was silent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I just was like kind of in, internally, I'm outwardly looking a certain way, but internally, I'm not necessarily buying into it. And opposite mm. for Rainier. You know, I, I think that when it comes to a lot of these things, you know, again, you guys were talking about how infidelity was the one, you know, get out of jail free card. And I think that's really true. I think that something that Christy said in one of our shows was that staying is today's current stigma. Mm. And I think that's really been interesting to watch her own story evolve about, you know, why she stayed, how she stayed and what that means to be able to stay. You know, it's not that novel in other cultures, but I think particularly in our culture, which teaches, you know, in some ways a real reversal of what used to be traditional gender roles in which women are now told to break through the glass ceiling, be more than conquerors, to not sit down and raise their hand, but to rather stand up and, and overcome. I think it's phenomenal. And I think one of the elements is now when women choose to stay as partners in relationships where, you know, whether it's actually adultery or simply, oh, your values don't align anymore, or he was dishonest, or he wasn't at the grocery store when he said he was going to be, that, well, of course you get out of Dodge. Of course you leave. Of course you leave his ass. And I think that love is a lot more complicated. You know, recently I I was seeing some of these memes on Instagram. It was like, if it's not a fuck yes, it's a fuck no. And I was like, what world did you grow up in? You know, the world is complicated. The world is actually full of gray. It is full of regrets and turbulence and moments where you second guess. That's actually the real world. 
And I think learning to live skillfully in the real world, as opposed to the ideal world, is learning how to mitigate those moments where you don't know what side is what. And you begin to listen to your own heartbeat. I finally got to sleep last night. You have been a whiny fucking bitch all week. Sweet, sweet slumber for like 10 hours, baby. Yeah. I have wanted to murder you. So whiny. I know. This is my ASMR voice. You ready? Yeah. Cured nightcaps, baby. You know who has a better voice than you is Rainier. He, his, first off, his cadence and like, he's a, he, yeah, he's, he's a, a meditation teacher, but I'm it's not, incredible. I'm a fucking hype man, dude. I'm a hype man for cured nutrition. You are, but I have a need a hype horn. Can we, put, can we get a hype horn on the buttons here? Absolutely not. I'll just do one with my mouth. I will likely divorce you if that happens. Yeah. Okay. What are we reading the ad for right now? Nightcaps and Zen. Well, just cured nutrition in general, but Correct. we are highlighting those supplements. Yes, we are because they are literal staples in our house now. It's, I don't know. Is it bad that we have a codependent relationship with them? Uh, I don't think it's codependent. Codependent. I think it's just, I'm just, uh, I just like it. Yeah. You know, it really makes a fucking difference. You guys. It's yeah. crazy. It's the consistency of sleep and not waking up multiple times, except now I pee all the time because there's a baby pushing on my bladder. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that's happening. Yeah. But I just sleep so much better through the night. I just needed it. I mean, for whatever reason, the chaos in my mind like broke through the nightcaps the past couple nights, but finally I just took two. You didn't take it. Yeah. I took it one night. Oh. But, um, it was just rough, man. It's just, God, I was having such a rough, I feel like a different person today. Oh, you know, you also paired with it. I paired with for the raw because, CBD. Yes. The raw CBD. Cap, so he yeah. had a raw CBD cap, one night cap and one Zen. Yeah. Perfect combo. It was, yeah. And I, even when I laid down, I was like, ah, it's going to be another one of those nights for whatever reason. And the reason is I quit smoking weed yeah. and, uh, temporarily. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just been hard. Like I just usually, maybe I wasn't going to sleep. I was just passing out from being baked. But um, I feel better now. Yeah. It, kinda, it takes about three days to kind of like get recovered from that. And now I'm on day five. So it's been super helpful. Yeah. Super, super helpful. So yeah, cured nightcaps and zen and get yourself some dog treats while you're over there. So nightcaps and zen, go get them. Maybe drop in a little raw CBD in there. I do one of those in the morning and then one at night. And I really like the way it makes me feel. Um, if you're someone who deals I like with the way it makes me feel, <laughs> a baby. little anxiety or stress, it makes me feel very chill, baby. That's it. So, <laughs> Link, I you. link is in the freaking show notes. Click on that link. Get yourself some goodies. Bye. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like reductionist memes out there that kind of uh, get it more because there, <laughs> yeah. there's there's validity to like the, it's a fuck yes or it's a no, right? Like that's there's sure. some, there's places there's there's parts of your life where that can be applied and maybe depending on where you, and that's the thing too with all this like meme self help, it's just like it depends on where you're at, right? If right. you have if you have like a people pleasery type like vibe about you and that's like a maybe a, a deficiency in your own life like you you sacrifice yourself for other people then maybe you do need like hey man if it's not a fuck yes it's a no you know what i mean but if you have like a lack of discipline in your life and like if you're like ah, i don't feel like a fuck yes for the gym today it's like no go get your ass in the fucking gym and get moving like do your thing you know what i mean like you need so it's it's so subjective in that same way i think um another one i like uh, the one mantra that kind of really helped me in my life and I held this mantra and wrote this mantra in my journal for probably two years was how you do anything is how you do everything. Sure. Right. Yeah. For some people that would create a neurotic shitstorm. For me, it was exactly what I needed. Right. So it's like, I wouldn't apply that to everyone. I wouldn't say like, this is what everybody needs to think. And that's one thing that really gets frustrating for me is like, when you're like, well, this worked for me, so it should work for everyone, you know? And that's, I think that there's so much more nuance and subjectivity to human reality than what a meme can provide you. <laughs> well, and I feel like it's so funny. I think about this for myself. I'm like definitely perfectionist, controlling, you know, people pleaser. And when I took that from my old life, which was not personal development, I was a TV host. It was like as surface level as you can get. And then I got into personal development and started working with people and, you know, started the podcast and doing all that. I just took all of my controlling craziness from over here. And then I implemented it into my personal development and just got as black and white as I possibly could. And there, you don't leave room for gray area, which I feel like stagnates your growth and doesn't allow you to see what's possible. And I think that I've had to have like wrenches thrown in all my plans to be like, ha 
good try. Like, let's try this thing that is more gray where you don't have to be a full yes or a full no, where it's maybe let's get curious about this. Why are you uncomfortable, but also excited at the same time? Can it be both and? And I think that that's such a prevalent thing that I see in our space is people want it to be black or white because it gives you a sense of control and it, you know, relinquishes the uncertainty of it that we're all so uncomfortable with, but the uncertainty is where the growth is. And I think that's the part that we forget. Yeah. I think that's why the podcast for us is about being messy. It's about kind of walking through and muddling through things that there's no one way to approach something. And that's really important aspect. And our dialogue, sometimes we'll get notes about like, oh, that wasn't my experience or that was totally my experience. And for us, the infidelity was a waking up. It was getting back online and becoming conscious and relating. Because what you're talking about is like taking the old skills and thinking, if I apply it to a new situation, it'll be new. This will be so exciting, right? And it's not. So we had other relationships and we're like, oh, but this is a new relationship and we'll do things differently. And we ended up doing the same things, which were Mm -hmm. unconscious and shitty. Yeah. And there is this aspect to it of waking up that I think is so important, right? That it happens routinely. We go to sleep. We, 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 you know, press the snooze button on life and we're just off to the races. It's like, and then something happens, right? It doesn't have to be to us. It could be, you know, the politician said something and we're shocked. How could they be that way? Oh my God. Like, can you believe that guy said that? Or can you believe that person did that? Usually when we're shocked about things, it's a pretty good sign that we've been asleep. Right. Mm. And I think in our own life, when something happens, oh my God, how could you do that to me? Well, because I was asleep, I wasn't paying attention. I was letting the clues kind of build up around me without noticing what they were. And sometimes we lull each other into sleep, right? We hear those terms like gaslighting or, or, or sometimes we convince each other. We pull the wool over each other's eyes. But one way or the other, one of the great things in relationship is it's an opportunity to wake up. It is your opportunity to say, oh my God. In fact, I mean, this is what I love. You know, we were talking earlier about like the bed and those kind of things. And it's like, I think that we love comfort as relationships, but one of the gifts of relationships is the mirror of recognizing I'm kind of a shit. Like (laughs) I'm not, I'm not actually the great, you know, Zen guru ascended master that I thought I was actually, I, I, I did a, like a make assumptions about me box on one of my stories. And someone said, it was like, you know, what's an assumption about me? And someone actually said, you're an ascended master. And I looked over at Christy and we both started laughing. We're like, oh my God, what is that? And (laughs) you recognize that in relationship to one another. Right. And that is a gift of relationships because suddenly you see your own inadequacies. Suddenly you see your own lack of congruence and you have to deal with it. I had this horrible, uh, (laughs) I had this horrible situation happen with my teeth. It was a tooth. I say my teeth though, because it's like a never ending horrible situation. Mm. And I, I had this like toothache that I was able to ignore for a full year. And Suddenly I'm like wallowing on the floor. I've had like four Tylenols and still I'm feeling pain. I've got like a towel jammed in my mouth to like guard the drool from coming out. I'm moaning like an animal like and Christy (laughs) looks over at me and says, you need to go to the dentist now. And we found a dentist and, you know, he's like, oh my God, you're like seven minutes away from like having, you know, some kind of aneurysm happen because, you know, your, your tooth is abscessed and and I got it pulled. The point is, I think a lot of us can ignore pain in our life for a long, long time. Mm. And it usually takes someone else close to us to say, hey, you can ignore it, but I can't deal with it. And I think that's a gift of relationships. I'm curious, Rainier, what you were ignoring that led into the infidelity, like what parts of you were being unmet, <laughs> flashback to therapy yesterday, uh, <laughs> the unmet needs, the things that were coming up that you were just ignoring and suppressing. Well, besides everything, um, to, get, <laughs> <laughs> to get specific, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the things I'm really conscious as I look back was my relationship with, with my own self. I had been profoundly dishonest with my sense of what I needed in life. 
I think that I had been taught to be the shoulder to cry on. I think I had been taught to be the voice of calm, the voice of reason, to be this solid rock for a person who, who, you know, might have had a breakdown or, or sadness or a grief. I had built a whole career over it. I had been a psychotherapist. I had done all these things, but the truth was I was crumbling inside. Right. And had been for an awful long time. I was just this child who wanted his mom. And I think that deep inward reality led me to kind of develop what I sometimes call the mother hunger, where I'm looking around the room for the person who will actually tend to my needs. She's often the person who shouldn't be tending to my needs. Like the most dangerous woman in the room is the woman who I'm actually looking at to tend to my needs. (laughs) And I have a a vault of secrets that when that situation happens, I can just deposit that secret in. I can just put that in. And so I think that I had not paid attention, one, to my own sense of misery, right? I had been trying to accept that I was miserable, but all that was was just a stuffing down of my own misery. I had to step into a radical acceptance that I didn't accept these things inside that I had developed a life that was not congruent to my own desires, to my own wants, to my own neediness. And beginning to recognize my own fragility was really a a start there. Christy, when you guys went through this and you were able to acknowledge like, okay, we're going to 2.0 version of us now. Here's what I need. Here's maybe my unmet needs from before. And now that I've had the time to sift through this and realize what was coming up for you. Well, we've had many iterations of relationship. I think that's the really beautiful part is that the more we have grown, it's it's just like we don't decide something and this is our relationship. It's like evolution over time. Like the way we are today is the conversations that we continue to have. Our relationship might be different after this, <laughs> after this conversation, right? Like it is a continuation of conversation. And I think for me in the past, it was like, no, we said it. So this is what it is. And it doesn't change. Mm. And I need it not to change. Actually, I need it to be just like this. And so it didn't, it was stifling. It was stifling for both of us. There was no creativity. There was no expansion because that stability is something that I really needed. And I counted on. And I think that something that we've learned is that we have to have free flow of flexibility. And when I'm more flexible, he can bring stability to the thing that I really need and want. And so we've learned that, but we've had many versions of our marriage. Back then, gosh, it feels like forever ago. (laughs) What did I need back then? I felt like I needed him. I was going to say paying attention. Yeah, paying attention. I really needed something for myself. I really needed to speak up. Mm. It's really wild. It's a really wild thing to think like, where did your voice go? Like, what happened to you? And I think that happens to a lot of people. I'm the youngest of four. I'm the only female in my home growing up. I was an athlete all the way through college. So I had a voice in certain places. My voice was different. Like my voice in my home was a female voice. Trying to masquerade is probably a male voice, you know, because I wanted to be part of the crew on the basketball court and volleyball any team that I played on, I was the captain and I was like, I was the point guard or I was, I was like the key place. And so like I had a voice in certain areas. So I didn't feel voiceless, but in marriage and my wants and my desires and my needs, if I didn't like something, I didn't have a voice. I I was like, I will make everything work. And that's kind of how our relationship began too. I mean, I was pregnant when we met And he had two children and then we had a child together. And so I made it work, right? Like I'm going to do everything and we're going to make it work. And the doing part got lost with like, there was just, there was um, no voice behind it. So I really needed to find my voice and to execute it. I'm curious, Connor and I have been talking about this recently, just as, you know, we're entering a new phase as well and continuing to be curious and Mm. learning about each other and understanding one another in new and different ways as you enter into new chapters. And you guys have said, like, you've had so many different iterations of your relationship. So I feel like you've done this far more many, far Far more many? Is that a <laughs> far more than us? Um, <laughs> we've been doing this for about three years, but 
I'm curious how you guys have continued to bring curiosity within yourselves and within the relationship and how the infidelity maybe was the catalyst for that to create more of that in the relationship. Yeah. Someone gave me this phrase once they said the fidelity of betrayal. And I love that line, the fidelity of betrayal. And I think what they said was like, you're always betraying. If, if, if you're honest, you're always betraying that iteration or that version of who you were in the past. I love that. Like we actually need to, in fact, be involved in a bit of betrayal rather constantly. We need to erode those things that have gone before. And so I think something like infidelity is a really, really big version of that. And that's what happened for us. We didn't know it at first. So a lot of it was just like, can we live now? Can we establish like a baseline of what's happening right now? Once we got that under control, once we, you know, started to learn to do life, then we got curious, like, well, what happened then? tell me about that moment. What the hell was going on with you Mm -hmm. and what was going on with you? And then that curiosity began to expand outward. Like, how did we get here? How did, how did your story match mine so perfectly? And I think one of the, one of the things is you genuinely have to be interested. That's a phrase that stands out to me, like interested questions, not interesting questions. You've got to play curiosity. So one of the, one of the little games that sometimes we play is like, you can ask me anything for the next 10 minutes. You can be curious about absolutely anything. And I tell you absolutely anything. And that provokes more curiosity. And in that little game and that little exchange, oh my God, it's so spicy. Like it really is like if you allow yourself to go there, it can be very, very interesting. But one of the things that we've done as we've gone further and further in that is detach, is depersonalize a lot of our view of it so that, again, we're kind of looking at a map of each other. And we're both around this map, kind of like old wartime field marshals. We're standing over this (laughs) giant map and we're going, okay, when you were six, there was that. Oh, and, and when I was 10, there was that. And we began to say, Oh my God, this is so, these were the movements of life. And so you get more and more and more granular when you're able to depersonalize it and just go, okay, this isn't about me. This isn't about my little thing. This might not even be directly about you. This is about this vision of life that's in front of us. What happened? What's happening? I would say to get there, we had to work really hard because there was a period of time for me that I really wasn't curious because all those curiosities were really painful to me. And so I didn't really want to open some doors because I wasn't ready. And I think one time Rainier said like, I just want you to be like kind of interested in me and kind of curious. Right. It was like, I was like, Oh yeah. I mean like there was a distance because I didn't know what I was going to find like in door number one, door number two. So there were safe places to be curious. And then there was the places that we really had to push into. And that came with a lot of healing and truth telling and resentment uh, telling. We went through a whole series of resentments. I mean, we worked our asses off so we could get to a place of curiosity because we had accumulated a lot of history together. I think it's funny how resentment and curiosity kind of like play off of each other. You know, I think about that in my life. Like it's like we can use the church for it. It's an easy example, like handful of years of resentment for the church and then a curiosity for like, what did that bring into my life? Like what did me even like having that experience and then having the kind of the courage to walk away from it and then the kind of uh, spiritual vacuum that that left open, like, and then what that brought into my life and you kind of start putting the pieces all together. And it's like, like you guys were speaking about like you know, just kind of the, 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 your timeline, you know, your, your personal development timeline or just growth timeline as a, as a human being. It's funny that those, it feels like those things are two sides of the same coin so often in a really interesting way. It's like, once you can either time or just work in general will kind of decrease that negative polarity of resentment. It's like, it creates almost like a curiosity vacuum of like, wow, why was I so charged about that? What did that mean? You know, what, where does it go from here? And there's a lot of really powerful questions that can be asked once the resentment phase has kind of subsided a bit. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is really classic exposure therapy in some ways. Right. And it's how you deal with, I think, 
people who have been highly traumatized or who, who might be very, very afraid of a situation. You know, I remember our oldest son, we went to go climb a lighthouse uh, with him and everyone, everyone ran up the stairs, this really high lighthouse. And I look at our oldest son and he's clutching the rails of the first step. And he's just like hugging the edge and he's terrified. He's sobbing. And, you know, I kind of walked through him with it the first few steps. But the more we went, the more terrified he was. And finally, I just leaned down and said, let's come back again next time. So he and I went out, we looked up, we waved at everyone high above. I would say that probably across the next three to four years, this event or some iteration of it happened. But we began to work through it and up to it. Eventually, four years later, after continuing to expose himself to that situation, continuing to take a few more steps and then a few more and and sweeten the pot every time and be reinforced for when he went there. Eventually, you know, about four years later, he's standing at the top of the lighthouse waving down to the people below. He was able to work through it. And I think that's how it happens with things that are very, very painful for us. We continue to show up to them. You know, it's terrifying. It's horrible. It's awkward. It's, it's, it's vile the first time. And then you allow yourself to have an, a next time and a next time and a next time. And the further you go, eventually the charge is removed. And then you feel like you're standing on top of the world. And it doesn't mean as much anymore. And that's that depersonalization process that I think goes on, that that charge gets taken away. I'm so interested in, it feels like, and this has been a lot of my own work in radical honesty and just, just with myself. Christy, very similar to you. I did not want to open any of the doors. I was so fucking scared what was behind them. For myself, with Connor, with friends, with my parents, like you name it. I was like, nope, we'll just keep these closed. It's all great. And as I've gotten older and become more self-aware and started doing this work, I've realized you have to ask yourself these questions even before you can ask your partner, even before you can share with your partner. And I, one of the biggest things that I hear from our audience and community is that they're just so scared to have these conversations and even be honest with themselves. And so I'm just wondering how you guys would talk to someone about First of all, being honest with themselves and asking those questions and getting curious within their own lives and then taking that to their partner so that they can have that foundation that the two of you have created, even through difficult moments and especially through difficult moments to have that. So you have that back and forth of this is who I am. This is the raw version of me. I am opening up so you can have permission to do that yourself and then we can do it together. Yeah, one of the great skills that we had to learn, and I'm going to say I had to learn was emotional regulation, like how to regulate my emotions to handle what's behind the door for myself and for the other. One of the skills that I really didn't learn very well growing up was how to handle big emotions. So I was really good at stuffing them down. Fabulous. You know, like I was the kid on the bathroom floor having a tummy ache because I had stuffed those emotions so far down. I'm just lying there, right? Because I'm upset because I don't have access to really share how I'm doing and what's affecting me. And I think a lot of people are that way. Like we repress all of those things. And, and as a result, we actually are depressed, right? Like we get what we put in or we're really anxious. And so for me, the first kind of line of defense was I have to figure out how to regulate my emotions besides just stuffing them down. So the things that you tell me, I'm going to be okay no matter what. I'm going to be okay. And that was a really big lesson. I think that for Rainier, like he likes to talk about big stuff. Well, has learned to over time, right? Maybe not, pers <laughs> maybe not personal stuff, but ideas and things like that. But the idea is that we can stick in this long enough to be okay. And conflict, really conflict avoidant. I was like, oh, are we going to be okay? I just want things to be okay. And the reality is you get the opposite of what you want. It's so silly, isn't it? Like, I want things to be okay, so I'm going to pretend they're not there and things are not okay. So emotional regulations, how to handle big emotion and be okay through it was a really big first step for me anyways. Yeah, I think that to play on that, it wasn't so much the the direct impact of emotion regulation, but that okayness was such a vital part in in what I had to bring as well. I had to recognize that I was going to be all right 
in the end, even if she left me, even if I was destitute, and I had to kind of advance the ball all the way down the court, right? I had to cope ahead all the way to the worst case scenario, which for me is like, I'm living in a duplex, you know, next to someone who's smoking really low grade marijuana and it's seeping through (laughs) the walls and it's gray outside and I don't have a backyard and no one's visiting me. It was this horrible image that I had to almost say, and even then I'll be okay. And I actually remember looking at Christy one moment as we were kind of processing through a lot of grief. And I actually said, I'm going to be okay. And I think at first that was a little like jolting to her. I was pissed. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, like, oh, after all that you've put me through, you're going to be okay. And yet, (laughs) that's exactly what I heard. I was like, oh, great. Good for you, buddy. (laughs) But what I really meant was my greatest terror was being alone. And what I recognized was that if I was completely and utterly alone, I'd still be in good company. That actually I was okay. And so I think that for both of us, that basic goodness began to be the root of how we could regulate our emotions or even our nervous systems and approach these conversations. Because shame is such a big motivator to hide, to be less than yourself. Maybe Kelly, you're kind of talking about that to show up as a full self. Like what will people think? How will they feel about it? In this situation, so much shame for me. And like, I wanted to hide a lot of things, continue to. And the idea was no more, no more. I cut a lot of people out of our story and things like that because I feared that I would feel really awful about how they would feel about me or us or our family. So I think shame has a wicked way of getting its hands in there. I think that's the beauty of our podcast is no more shame, (laughs) right? No more shame. Like, knock it off. And sometimes we've had people say, I love your podcast, but I actually can't share it because someone will know that this has been my life. And I'm like, share it, share it. Like (laughs) the purpose is not to hide anymore. Yeah. Wow. Well, I just think you two are so fucking amazing. (laughs) I adore you. Love the show. Everyone needs to listen to it. And thank you for sharing just so honestly and it's just been really fun to talk to you guys. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Let's do it again. We, yes. we won't talk so serious minded, you know, next time. <laughs> no, we can yeah. talk about all kinds of stuff. We can go back to nipple beards. Yeah, we're great with it's it. It's great. Yeah. Nipple beards. Oh, no. <laughs> some, flies, some big ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you guys. 